We turn this morning to Matthew chapter 21 for our scripture reading. We have the account there of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the first day of what we would call Passion Week, the week of suffering. Matthew chapter 21. We will read the first 27 verses. The first 11 constitute our text. And I won't reread those verses. We hear the inspired and fallible word of God. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they sat him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple And he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them. And went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. 
And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I will in likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people. For all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus had been evading the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and by doing so had been hindering their plans to kill him. They relentlessly had pursued him. They wanted him dead. But he had turned them away again and again. In the immediate preceding verses in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus had begun to prepare his disciples for the reality of his death. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. The disciples still could not understand or fathom the necessity of his death and the wonder of his resurrection. But Jesus was teaching, and he would continue to teach throughout this week, the urgency and the necessity of that sacrifice for them. This most important week of Jesus lay before him. The week that we call the Passion Week or the Week of Suffering. Over one-third of the gospel narratives is devoted to this final week of Jesus' life. To put that in perspective, of the 89 chapters in the Bible regarding Jesus' life, 30 chapters deal with the last week of his life. Every gospel account writing on this subject, which marks it then as a significant event in the history of Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes now to the capital of Judah, Jerusalem. Whenever the king would come to a capital city, much preparation would be made. There would be much anticipation and parades would be set up in order to welcome the king to the city. God created a warm reception for Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. Even though the majority of the people didn't realize what they were doing, didn't realize who Jesus really was, God ordained that his reception into Jerusalem would involve this wonder. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to perform the most important aspect of his ministry. He would give his life for the sake of those whom the Father gave him. He had deliberately avoided a following in Jerusalem up to this point so that he would force the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees to crucify him on his timetable, not theirs. 
Now, they didn't want to kill Jesus during the time of the Passover. There were too many people in town. They express that in chapter 26, verse 5. But Jesus forces their hand, and he requires of them that they have to act during this time in order that God's word be fulfilled. The Passover lamb would give his life on Passover. Now, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he shows the crowds what kind of a king he is. He's not an earthly king. He's not proud. He's not a king who comes in royal majesty and glory to establish an earthly kingdom. He's lowly. He's a spiritual king. He's one who comes in order to forgive them their sins and bring them into fellowship and communion with Jehovah, the living God. He comes as king. And that's the central message that's given us through this passage. He is the king. Now, as he comes as king, as king, he's going to die on Friday. But he wants the church and he wants all the city to know he is the king. And so Jesus does something here that's entirely out of character with the rest of his ministry. There's something so different about this event. Jesus generally never sought attention He would do miracles, he would do wonders, and then he would instruct the people not to tell anybody or to keep it more private or more quiet. But here, he welcomes their attention. Here the crowds are flocking after him, and Jesus doesn't turn them away. He welcomes that publicity. And at this time, there are thousands and thousands of people that have come upon Jerusalem in order to keep the Passover. They're watching. Jesus doesn't rebuke. Their attention. He doesn't turn away their publicity. He seeks it out. He's the one who makes this happen. He's the one who sends his disciples to go get the donkey. Now what is it that Jesus is teaching? What is it that he's making known? Jesus wants to make known to the whole of Jerusalem. I am king. I am the messianic king. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. And so he comes to Jerusalem then in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. We look at that. Prophecy, and we look at the fulfillment here as Jesus' triumphal entry. Noting, first of all, that he comes as a messianic king. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture pertaining to the Messiah. Secondly, he comes as a lowly king. He's not coming as an earthly king. He comes as a spiritual king. And finally, he comes then as a suffering king. First of all, he comes as a messianic king. He comes proclaiming That he is the Christ. We read, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Jesus boldly makes known the fact that he is coming to fulfill Zechariah 9 verse 9. We know that Jesus had a divine program that had been laid out for every aspect of his life already in the Old Testament. He had to be born of a virgin according to Isaiah 7 verse 14. He had to be born in Bethlehem according to Micah 5, verse 2. He had to be born out of David, according to Isaiah 9, verse 6. 
He had to, after he was born, go up into Egypt, according to Hosea 11, verse 1. He had to return again to Nazareth in order to be rejected by his own, according to the Psalms, as again and again they laid out that reality. He had to go up to Jerusalem, riding upon the colt of a donkey, according to Zechariah 9, verse 9. He had to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, as Jonah had pointed to by his being in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights. He would be rejected of men, according to Isaiah 53. All of these prophecies were being fulfilled now through the wonder of his coming to Jerusalem to accomplish that final work that was required of him. As we noted, previous to this, Jesus had been somewhat careful about releasing his identity He had refrained from boldly proclaiming his identity to the masses. There were times when he insisted that he was the Messiah. He made it clear. Because his time had not yet come, he had not been bold to proclaim it to the crowds. He didn't want to become popular too quickly because then the people would try to kill him before his time. But then Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And God ordained that miracle to be the occasion for tremendous attention being directed toward Jesus. Multitudes had found out about that wonder. And now this comes on the heels of that miracle. Crowds of people now, again, are attracted to Jesus. They're beginning to follow Him. And Jesus now makes no attempt to silence the crowds. Rather, He makes clear to them who He is and why it is that he's coming into Jerusalem. He is coming to fulfill that which Zechariah 9, verse 9, had made known. Now, Jesus comes to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. That's significant. Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives, where he spent a time of prayer, a time of reflection with his disciples. He had to spend time with God and spend time with them before he was prepared to perform this work. Coming out of that time of prayer, that time with God, he now then is prepared to descend the mountain and now come into Jerusalem. It's only about a mile or two as to distance. A beautiful view with the countryside behind him, the city in the distance, and the route now that he takes up is that short distance between the Mount of Olives and entrance into the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming to his people rather than they coming out to seek him. Now that was unique also among kings and rulers. The words of Luke 19, verses 39 and 40 are significant. As the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, quiet the multitudes. Don't let the multitudes yell so. And what is Jesus' response? I tell you, if these should hold their peace the stones would immediately cry out. God wanted His Son glorified. God wanted His Son to rise to preeminence. And so much was this true now that Jesus would be glorified regardless of the circumstances. It was time for all to know, here is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed of God, who is sent for the purpose of the salvation of his church, saving them from sin and bringing them to know the wonder of salvation. 
God desired that Jesus receive then a triumphal entry. Twofold reason. First of all, to bring the elect to repentance and joy. What a day of rejoicing this would be for God's children. But also to harden the hearts of the wicked. That would move them then, ultimately, to kill Jesus in this week. As Jesus rides in, he's... He receives this response. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 9. Now Jesus comes in riding on the colt of a donkey. Why is he riding? Jesus never rode so far as we're aware. At any other time in the history of his ministry, he always was walking here and there. Here now we have Jesus riding in order to make a statement and in order to fulfill Scripture. He enters Jerusalem precisely in the manner that Zechariah had prophesied. Now some point to that prophecy and insist that Jesus had to ride both the mother and the young donkey. That's unlikely due to the short distance that there was here. By referencing both in Zechariah, the emphasis yet falls on the fact that Jesus is going to be riding on the colt of the ass. Why was the mother along? We can understand that in terms of it providing the calm for the colt and enabling then the two of them to proceed together as a procession with Jesus riding the younger one. There was no doubt to the fact that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Anyone who knew Zechariah immediately could see before their eyes what was happening. This is exactly what Zechariah had spoken of. And the crowd would see Jesus then, importantly, as king. So often they had refused to see Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. And in, in this instance, Jesus would make it so clear that only unbelief could walk away and not see what was taking place here. Now, the words of the crowd in that regard are significant. Hosanna to the son of David. This was the city that David ruled, Jerusalem. The crowds are aware of that. And Jesus now comes as the son of David. He's the legitimate king. He's the only true king with a right to rule. The king who currently is seated on the throne in Jerusalem is not a legitimate ruler of this city. The son of David is the king. And no other individual had ever occupied that throne as he. All of them had been types pointing to the reality of the one who would come as the son of David. And now that's what the crowd refers to him as. The son of David. Now these words are very similar to the words that the angels spoke at the time of Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Luke 19 portrays a a little different spin to the words that the crowd was stating. Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Here in Matthew 21, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna involves two words 
that mean save now. Originally, the idea of Hosanna was a prayer that the saints would pray expressing to God their desire for deliverance. Save us now. Come, deliver us. And that's the cry now that rises from the lips of the crowds as Jesus walks through their midst and as he proceeds to Jerusalem. Blessed is he, is their response. Blessings on the son of David, the one who comes to save us now. The prince of David's line. All of that speaking to the fact that here was the Messiah. This is the one whom God had prophesied. This is the one of whom God had spoken. And now he comes into Jerusalem to accomplish his good pleasure. This was a day of hosannas. And in this cry, what they were expressing then was that the one who came was coming in the name of Jehovah. He was coming with divine authority. He was coming as one on a mission from Jehovah God to accomplish the purpose God gave him. The cry then is that God will now accomplish that which he's spoken. The God who prophesied, the God who spoke, that he now brings it to pass. Save us now. They're looking then to the fulfillment of that which had taken place previously. The wonders and the blessings of peace that God had spoken of, wonders that took place in heaven and would now be displayed toward God's children. Now, beloved, these are astounding words to come from the lips of this multitude. And these words show Jesus is king. They are confessing that he is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one, the Christ who's come now as the divine representative from God to accomplish salvation for his church. Now, did they understand what they were saying? Without a doubt, many, if not most, did not understand. And that becomes evident from the fact that just in a few short days later, they're going to be crying, crucify him, crucify him. Were they making this statement in connection with the knowledge of their sins, their sinfulness? And their need for deliverance from sin. For forgiveness as that great aspect of salvation that was necessary. Again, the multitudes likely were not looking at their sin. They were not crying out in the knowledge of their deep need. Were they looking for an earthly king or a spiritual king? Again, tragically, the multitudes were crying out in anticipation and expectation of an earthly king, one who would establish an earthly throne. We know that the majority had a wrong perspective and a corrupt theology. They had been taking parts of the Old Testament that they wanted, and they were dismissing other parts that they did not want. And so instead of combining Psalm 118 with Isaiah 53, the suffering Savior, and Zechariah 9, verse 9, so that they could see the full nature of his identity and the purpose of his coming, they merely were focusing on certain aspects that would lend themselves to their desire 
their will. An earthly king who would perform earthly wonders. And so the multitudes are able to sing, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then one week later, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus is praised on this Palm Sunday. But then, on Friday, cursed and committed to death. Jesus as mighty Savior and Deliverer is praised according to the sovereign will of Jehovah God. But then also Christ as the spiritual office bearer, anointed by God, would be cursed and condemned to death, again according to the sovereign determination of Jehovah God. The Jews were singing hosannas to the Messiah who would do miracles. And they were looking for a miracle worker. They were looking for an earthly king. Long they had closed their eyes to the messianic sermon that would preach redemption from sin, deliverance from sin, and the forgiveness of sins. A sermon that would preach the restoration of God's justice as that justice would be realized in the way of mercy. Jesus comes now, and he comes with a powerful testimony to the fact that he is king, and that he is a king who will establish peace. He's not riding on a mighty stallion. He's not riding in on a horse of war. He's riding on a donkey. And a donkey represented, during Bible times, peace. And that was a sign of that which Jesus had come to accomplish. He wasn't an earthly king. He wasn't a warrior figure who would establish an earthly kingdom. He was the prince of peace to establish peace with God and life everlasting. And so as he rides in then, as that messianic king clearly prophesied of the Old Testament, the people are placing their coats, they're placing branches in front of him and in front of the donkeys in order that they walk on those branches and coats. This was the practice of the crowds when a king would come to town. They would show respect. They would show honor in this manner. The king wouldn't walk on the ground, but instead he would be walking on that path that was laid out for him. And so as they're spreading their garments, as they're spreading the various branches from the trees, no doubt cutting branches off all of the trees that are around, olive trees, many other trees that are present. But John, in John 13, verse 13, specifically identifies palm branches. And that's what gave occasion then for this to be identified as Palm Sunday. As those palm branches now were being cast down before Jesus, on which then the donkey was walking. Here was Jesus, prophesied in the Old Testament. We read in First Kings or 2 Kings 9.13, Then they hasted and took every man his garment, and put it under him on the top of the stairs, and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. That's the way they had announced Jehu, throwing their coats down, so that Jehu could walk on those coats, and so that they could declare the same. This was the way the king would be identified. This one is the king. Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26, reflect the Hosannas. And that which they're quoting is a messianic psalm. They knew that that psalm was speaking 
of the coming Messiah. 2 Samuel 7, it talked about the line of David. talked about Jesus coming from that line of David. And now here he is, coming to take his throne. Coming in the name of the Lord. What's striking? Jesus doesn't silence the crowd. He doesn't rebuke the crowd. He receives it. He allows them to yell. He comes and receives that honor. But he does it as a lowly king. First of all, clearly identified as the Messiah. But secondly, the Messiah comes in a lowly manner. Sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass, was the prophecy of Zechariah. There's a few wonders here that we need to identify that demonstrate already in this history Jesus as king. That's the main point again that Jesus is declaring as he comes into Jerusalem. First of all, this was a young donkey that likely had never had a rider on it. Even as you children know, what happens if you get on a young horse that has never been ridden before? That horse is not going to appreciate the weight on it. It's going to buck. It's going to try to kick you off. Jesus displays here his royal glory and power in that he is Lord also of this animal. He stays on the animal. When Jesus sits on this animal, it submits to him as Lord. He's king. And even the animals acknowledge such. Another way in which his kingness is demonstrated here, Jesus instructs the disciples to go get the animals. And he tells them, if someone asks why you're taking them, say, the Lord has need of them. And so the disciples go. We're not sure who. Likely one of them was Peter. But they go, and sure enough, they find the donkey tied up just like Jesus had prophesied. Jesus demonstrates, I am Lord of all. I know all things. I know that down the road that way, there's a donkey tied up. And he sends his disciples then to that one. He instructs his disciples to take the colt along with its mother. Again, why both? He knows they're going to cooperate better together. This king knows all things. And he demonstrates that he is all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He sees all things. And, as a glorious king then, he's the one who ordains the fact that this donkey belongs ultimately to him. He is its Lord as well. He's ordained someone to feed it and care for him as means. But what are they supposed to say if someone says, why are you taking it? The Lord has need of them. And the person will allow them to be taken. Jesus demonstrating again, I am king and Lord of all. I own everything. The cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to me. To be used by me according to my purpose. And so the disciples bring it to him. And Jesus shows himself Lord, King of all. Now the main point then in this passage is not that Jesus rode on a donkey. The fact of the donkey, as we noted, represented peace. And it was the significance of that that's on the foreground. He comes as king. Both horses and donkeys were valued animals. But they represented different things and they were used in different ways. The horse symbolized warfare. It symbolized fighting. Whereas the donkey was used on the farm. 
It was used for travel. It symbolized the idea of peace. During a time of war, the horses were the choice animals. During times of peace, the donkey was sought out for the work that it was able to accomplish. In the Old Testament, we find many references to such. Jer, the judge, is noted for having 30 sons who rode on donkeys' colts in Judges 10, verse 4. We find evidences again and again through the Old Testament that the great kings would ride donkeys during times of peace. When there was not war, but there was peace. We find repeated references of kings riding their donkeys to their coronation so that they would ride that donkey. And it was display of the fact that the land was now at peace. So that Solomon rides his donkey in order to be made the king of Judah, showing that the fighting is done, the conquering has been accomplished, and now there is that peace that is in joy. Now Jesus enters into Jerusalem displaying that wonder. He comes as one who is lowly. He comes not esteeming himself as an earthly ruler or king, but he comes to accomplish peace. He doesn't come riding on a valiant stallion. He doesn't come on a military animal. He comes on a farm animal, the colt of a donkey. He doesn't come storming the capital. He comes to bring salvation. And he comes to bring peace with God. So that sinners might be reconciled with the living God. Knowing and believing their sins are forgiven, they have peace with God. He comes with salvation. He comes to bring the depths of the love of God to His loving children. Now this was not the type of king that Judah desired. Jesus comes without arms, without any kind of military weapons. He comes defenseless. And that's what Zechariah 9 verse 9 spoke of. He comes lowly. He comes in this manner. He comes in order to establish peace. But that's not what the people wanted to remember of the Old Testament prophesies. And here we have a warning how easy it is for us to pick and choose what we want this to teach or we want, we want this to say. They reference Zechariah and they now apply it as they desire. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. That's what Zechariah 9, 9 stated. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to shining sea. God and Zechariah already testifying. He's coming in order to establish a kingdom of peace. A kingdom that is universal out of every nation, tribe, and tongue to bring his church into the glorious wonder of the salvation that is in him alone. He would build that kingdom at the expense of his own blood. He would not build that kingdom at the expense of the tax dollars of the people. He would not build that kingdom at the expense of the blood of those who would have to fight on his behalf through war. He would build the kingdom by personally paying the price necessary for the sins of the sons of God. 
He would build his kingdom through death. And that would be the nature of his lowliness. Lowly in that he would personally come to lay down his life in the place of those whom he loved. Beloved, that's lowly. Now that lowliness, we know, would only be temporary. The masses in that regard are correct. They look to Jesus as one who temporarily would be lowly. As they see him now come in on a donkey, they are in awe. What is going on here? You can imagine their consternation. What is Jesus trying to do? And in their estimation, he's trying some clever ploy here to try to win the hearts of the people by his humility, his lowliness. Thinking that that will be the means by which then he's able to be promoted as king and be able to take over as an earthly king. So they thought. He would be poor and lowly now, but soon he's going to be great, he's going to be rich, he's going to be exalted. They were right. But they were wrong at the same time. Right from the perspective of precisely that is what God would accomplish. He would come as one who was lowly, one who was meek in order to be esteemed, to be exalted, but not in an earthly sense as they expected, rather in a spiritual sense. His lowliness would be a transition to glory, but not to secular glory, to spiritual glory. Jesus would increase. Now it's striking in that regard. He doesn't take the road from Jerusalem to Rome. Rome is where the king, where Caesar dwelt. He must come from the Mount of Olives downward to Jerusalem, and he must go to Golgotha. The road that leads to everlasting death and hell. The road must reach its culmination on the tree that God had ordained during the three hours of darkness in the coming week. And Jesus must be brought not just to the humiliation of riding a humble colt of a donkey. He must be brought to the humiliation of the cross. That lowliness is depicted here. Now the Jews wrote their own commentary on Zechariah 9 verse 9. And they continue to this day to subscribe to it. Looking for one who's coming to bring them earthly benefits. Looking for one who's going to be an earthly king and earthly ruler. Jesus also wrote his commentary on this event. He wrote it with his own hand. He wrote it with his own blood. He accepted the ovation. He accepted the garments. He expected the palm leaves and branches. All as had been part of that divine program. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 had spoken up. A psalm that was sung by the people on the first day of the week. Now as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Later, those singing that song would refuse the cornerstone whom God had appointed. They would reveal themselves as foolish builders. But Jesus would sing Psalm 118 all the way to the cross. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Embodying the fulfillment of that prophecy in his flesh and blood. And beloved, he works in us the faith by which we cry out, Hosanna, come save. Doing so from hearts that know our deep need for forgiveness. 
Hearts that know our deep need for a Savior who reconciles us with God, who gives us to know life everlasting. He came as a, finally, a suffering king. This is the first event that's recorded in the Passion Week. And this week is known as the week of Jesus' suffering. It was not the first of his suffering. He had been suffering his whole life long. Already his lowly birth had constituted the beginning of that suffering as he was laid in a manger. But that suffering climaxed now in the last week of his life and ultimately on the cross during the three hours of darkness. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem meant for him suffering. Usually the king would ride into the city after having accomplished the great battle. The battle was over, and now the king would come into the city victorious and claiming victory. Jesus rides into the city prior to that great battle. He comes in order to suffer. He sees the multitudes thronging around him, whom he knew would also be thronging around him at the end of the week with a very different tune. Now they were rejoicing. They had seen the miracle of the healing of Lazarus. They saw many other wonders. Later they would be mocking him. They would be ridiculing him. Jesus reflects that in his looking about them and seeing the blindness of the multitudes. In Luke 19, verse 41, when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. He sees the horror. He sees the tragedy. But he weeps, not in terms of unfulfilled desires. He weeps as he sees the blindness, as he sees the destruction that will be evident upon these for their sin and unbelief. He sees the blindness of his own disciples in John 12, verse 16. These things understood not his disciples at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that these things had been done unto him. There's a question that comes up in our mind with regard to all of this. Why was Jesus not arrested immediately upon coming into Jerusalem? The Jews were looking for him. They were trying to kill him. They had, so to speak, a price on his body. Anyone that would find him, was told to come, rush to the authorities, identify him, so that they could come out and arrest him. Everybody knew that the leaders were looking for Jesus. And now, regardless of that arrest warrant, Jesus comes publicly right into Jerusalem. Now, you know, first of all, the reason, because the crowd was so large, it would have made a public scene. And the leaders knew that they didn't want to make such a scene with someone who was seemingly so popular at this time. But secondly, again, they can't figure out what Jesus is doing. What is his motivation? This seems all so silly in their mind. What kind of a king comes riding into a city this way? And so that from their perspective in this form, he's no threat to them. But finally, God knew it was not yet his time. His son had work to do yet. And this week would be filled with activities that were necessary for the good of his church and for the glory of his name. But soon that opposition would come. There was a response of the people here claiming 
that Jesus is the Messiah of David's throne. They're the leaders who are skeptical. They don't understand really what's all going on. The people are correct. This is the son of David. This is the promised Messiah who's come to save his people. The leaders are wrong to mock that. They mock that truth. Jesus is king, but Jesus will gather his citizens. He will accomplish that wonder. And he will preserve them from their enemies to all eternity in order to preserve and to keep them. From eternity, he was identified as the one who would sit on the throne of David. And now, he's come to Jerusalem to claim that throne to all eternity. But his kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. The majority, again, expecting that earthly kingdom. Once they figure out that he's not intent on an earthly throne, then they reject him. They cast him out and they crucify him. What did this mean for Jesus? For Jesus to ride into Jerusalem meant torture. It meant certain mockery and ridicule. It meant that he would die and that he would suffer hell itself. Jesus knew that full well knowing the reality of the suffering that would come upon him He rode into Jerusalem. Beloved, in this we see the love of our Savior for us. This is the love that Jesus had for you and for me. Knowing what would come upon him, he rode in. In order that he might give his life as a substitute for the sheep whom the Father had given him. He entered Jerusalem for your sake and for my sake. He did this out of love for those whom the Father had given him. And we see here, beloved, the marvelous love of Jesus Christ for us. Riding into Jerusalem, knowing full well, this is going to be the end. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to have to suffer the everlasting wrath of God. But I must do this for the sake of my Father and for the sake of my sheep. What love, beloved? No greater love hath a man than this, that he give his life for his friends. And that's why Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And Jesus would experience that sorrow alone. He would be forsaken. He would be denied, even by his earthly disciples. Peter denies him. The other apostles flee from him. Jesus would be forsaken by his own father, during that three-hour period of darkness on the cross. Such is the suffering that He endured to save us and to bring us into the enjoyment of peace with God. Beloved, knowing the wonder of Palm Sunday, by faith we confess, salvation has come. The King is coming. The King is coming. We know that he's already come. He's already accomplished the wonder of salvation. But he's coming again. And we cry out with the multitudes, Come, save us now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. He's established his kingdom through the wonder of his death on the cross and through the wonder of the resurrection and the ascension and his pouring out his spirit. He's established a kingdom that is everlasting, a kingdom that is universal out of every nation tribe and tongue. He atoned for sin. He paid the price 
that was necessary, satisfying fully the justice of Jehovah God. He tore open the way into fellowship and communion with the living God. And he came initially not in power, not in might. He came in humility. He came in weakness. He rode himself into Jerusalem in order to give himself as that substitute, that sacrifice. Unlike any king, he came to die for those whom the Father had given him. To die in order to establish that kingdom. And then rose again to declare the victory. We cry out, beloved, as those who know our need for forgiveness. We cry out as those who by faith know the wonder of the work that He performed. Knowing that our greatest need is reconciliation with the living God. And we cry out then as confessing, I am a sinner in need of the King. The son of David. And so the question we face is, what do you think of the Messiah? Do you know your need for that king? Are you longing for his coming again? This time in majesty and in power, on the clouds of glory to usher all his own into the glory that awaits. Do you know your poverty as a result of sin? And the wonder of the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ. We don't deserve fellowship with God. How can this God receive me? How can this God be willing to take me into His family? Beloved, by faith we cling to Jesus Christ, our King and Lord. This is my King. He came for me in my greatest need. He is faithful. He is true. He is everlasting. And there's going to be another glorious and grand day in the future. Another triumphal entry for which we long. A day of shouting. A day of victory. Because this king will come again in order to take all his people into the kingdom that is perfect and without sin to all eternity. In a moment, we will see him coming. We will stand in awe. The whole of the world informed of his arrival. Coming in glory in majesty and in power. Crowds will join Him, called out of the graves, a multitude no man can number, called out of darkness into the wonder of the joy of everlasting life with Him in the new Jerusalem. His coming will be triumphant. And what an entrance that will be. The Messiah, along with all of His people, ushered into an eternity of heavenly bliss. That we confess, beloved, by faith. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the joy Thou hast worked in our hearts. We thank Thee for the wonder that flows from our hearts and lips. Hosanna unto the King of David. We thank Thee for the confession that He is our Lord and King. That He comes to rule and to bring us into the joy and wonder of that everlasting life and salvation. And our confession is, to Him alone be victory and power and glory. Amen.